we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is political scientist Matt Grossman, director of Michigan State University's Institute for Public Policy and Social Research. He also has this great Twitter feed. I I love it. It's just full of interesting, relevant, and most importantly, I think, really substantive things about politics and policy research. It's one of the first feeds that I check every day. And so if you're at all interested in public policy, definitely follow Matt on Twitter. Um, And today, Matt and I are going to be talking about his book, Artists of the Possible, Governing Networks and American Policy American Policy Change Since 1945. Matt Grossman, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. So now, Artists of the Possible is essentially about how American public policy happens. And of course, a lot of people have theories about this, and uh, I've, I've taught plenty of the theories over the years, but what I think makes your book especially valuable is You go well beyond theory. I mean, you actually take a look at what's really a staggering amount of policy history, Uh, 790 specific policy enactments and over 1,300 actors that have significant involvement in those policies. Uh, So, I mean, that's just, it's overwhelming for me just to think about that amount of research. But I was hoping that to start, you could talk a little bit about kind of what you looked at, you know, the types of policies, as well as that time period that you examined. Sure. So I I looked across all domestic policy areas, so from energy to health to education to to everything. And uh, what I did was rely on policy area histories that had been written uh, by other scholars and and observers um, in each of these individual issue areas uh, and uh, tried to find every uh, policy enactment uh, that uh, they thought was a significant uh, change uh, across 
uh, whatever scope they they looked at, and I included anything from 1945 to, to 2004. Uh, and so that list includes the uh, all the well-known uh, policy areas like the Civil Rights Act and the Clean Air Act, um, but it also includes uh, quite a few others that uh, maybe didn't get as much attention at the time, but were considered uh, influential policies. And it also includes some executive and court actions uh, that were also considered uh, policy changes on par with legislation uh, by the policy historians. Now, when you talk about significant policy enactments, I guess that by necessity, that's something of a subjective judgment, right? There's not really kind of a bright line sort of designation between significant and more kind of a trivial policy. Uh, it's not uh, completely a bright line, but we did uh, code the policies on a sort of a three-point scale of of small, medium, and large to to uh, to, to to be easy. And there was uh, quite a bit of agreement across the authors on sort of which ones were the biggest and and which ones were the smallest. Right. And you mentioned specifically that you focus on domestic policy, and I'm assuming that there was a pretty good reason for not including things like trade and defense policy and those sort of things. Can you talk a little bit about why you didn't include that also in your analysis? Well, it's it's mainly a distinction based on uh, what scholarship was available. Uh, foreign policy is usually studied in, in the international relations subfield, and the policy histories that cover it um, are, are usually more international in scope or less focused on the domestic politics uh, surrounding the, the foreign policy enactments. Um, but we did uh, look at foreign influence on domestic policy, uh, and, and there were a decent number of instances uh, where uh, factors outside of the United States were, were deemed influential in domestic policy. Right. And you mentioned this is, uh, you mentioned you started in 1945. Uh, was there anything particular about 1945 that you chose, I mean, uh, or, or as your starting point, or why, why that period, I guess? Well, of course, it's the the post World War II uh, era, um, but it also uh, sort of coincides when most of the policy histories that are out there right. uh, started tracking things, uh, and um, it, it also is kind of the beginning of the era of separate issue areas. Um, a lot of the uh, histories that track, say, the New Deal or before, um, tend to just be about everything at once, um, whereas you start to get this literature that that looks more in-depth at, say, energy policy or health policy over an extended period, starting in 1945. And I think part of, part of that reflects that there really were these, these separate um, uh, c- communities of, of actors involved in each of these policy areas. And so then did the, did the research available also kind of become more, I don't want to maybe use the word professionalized, but kind of more sort of, I guess, socially, social scientifically rigorous at, at, at that point as opposed to previous areas, would you think? Well, I think it, it, historians find it find it easier to, to research more recent uh, events sure. um, often, although uh, n- usually not kind of the ones that just happened. So there was, that, there was uh, kind of a stopping point on the other side where there really wasn't much analysis of things um, at, at the time I was writing at, uh, of things in the Obama administration or the Bush administration. So I uh, kind of cut it off at some point. But uh, when you get about 10 or 15 years, then you start to get um, comprehensive histories about uh, what what happened and why. And so can you can you talk a little bit about how you took all of those all of those policy histories and there was just a ton of material. How do you go about 
sort of synthesizing, finding patterns in in all of that? I mean, obviously, that's a that's a pretty big question. Maybe you can just kind of give the overview of that. Well, the big move was to accept the historian's judgments. Uh, so I. Um you know, didn't individually uh, fact check uh, what what everyone said or, or or try to evaluate every explanation that historians gave. I, I sort of tracked it. I did compare them against each other. I did look to see if it mattered uh, what kind of author uh, I was I was reading or when they were uh, writing. Um, uh, but mostly, I took their word for uh, what policies were important, who was involved in passing them, uh, what environmental factors um, mattered. And and then where possible, I tried to compare the record uh, from those policy historians with kind of independent evidence, things like public opinion or party change, uh, to see if it uh, could could predict um, their assessments of important policies. So I, I guess between kind of letting the peer review process do its job and also uh, sort of inter-rater uh, uh, reliability, I guess you could say that you would you could actually come up with a pretty consistent list of things then is what you're saying. Yeah, it was a it was a fairly consistent list, although, um, you know, there are some differences in the kinds of policies that were, were mentioned by more uh, of the policy historians. And I was able to look at that. It, it tends to be just the, the bigger and more salient um, uh, policies. Uh, like I said, it it, uh, it it seems like a like it must have been a daunting project to, to undertake. But uh, before we get to your findings, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the main theories of how policy change happens. And of course, in your book, you lay things out by explaining what these theories are before you kind of come to your own conclusions based on all of this, this research. And the first of these theories is uh, agenda setting theory. Uh, and according to agenda setting theory, how should we expect public policy to happen, to be enacted? Well, the, the ideal type, I think, would be that public and policymaker attention are focused on a particular problem in need of a solution, um, usually because of, of some kind of either focusing event uh, like an oil spill or upsurge in, in media attention, something that gets us all kind of focused on the same uh, issue area at the same time, and that that's kind of the first step uh, to, to policymaking. And of course, that's for, for anyone who teaches public policy, and I'm one of those people, that's one of the, I mean, that's a fundamental thing that we cover in our classes. And I've told students for a lot of years that that's how things work, at least in part. And so I, I got to, you know, I got to wonder how well does agenda setting theory actually hold up in the real world based on your research? Well, the quintessential uh, kind of agenda-driven policymaking is pretty rare. Uh, that is, uh, events, public opinion, and media all matter in, in some cases, but they matter a lot less often than just internal factors uh, within uh, government. And I also find that there's no general relationship between whether the public and media are paying attention to an issue area and whether we are likely to, to pass policy uh, to address that uh, issue area. So, so um, I think listeners will 
no things like gun control, which uh, come up repeatedly in the in the media um, and in in public attention, um, and they have at some times been associated with with real policy changes, like in the 1960s. Um, but uh, the, there is no kind of general relationship between when we we're paying attention to it and, and when something is able to pass, um, because the disagreement is about what the policy should be, not whether there should be uh, any uh, policy to address it. Right. And after you cover agenda setting theory, you talk about uh, macro politics. And at least as I understand it, there are a couple of elements that kind of work together. But we can also talk about separately to this. And the first one being that, well, you know, if you have more liberals uh, in office or even in the electorate, you'll get more liberal policy. And to me, all this is outside of the scope of what you covered in the book. The Affordable Care Act would be a great example of this because there are lots of people who would say the only way you get Obamacare is because, you know, Democrats are in charge of the executive branch, have a filibuster proof majority in the Senate. And that's basically a, a major factor in how it came about. Is that is that more or less how it how it works, at least in theory? Yeah. So the view would be we we get more liberal policy when Democrats win elections and liberals are elected, um, as in 2009. And so what, what about, what, what about that? I mean, does that, is that pretty much hold true over a a lot of policy? And I should point out, uh, and I didn't mention this about agenda setting theory, but I'm sure that you can always find isolated instances can cherry pick policies where that happens. And so what we're really talking about here is how this theory, how any of these theories in general explain policy change, right? Oh, yes. Uh, there are instances of each, um, like uh, Obamacare that you uh, mentioned um, being consistent with, with this theory and, you know, the, the gun control or the environmental legislation following an oil spill being consistent with the agenda setting theory. It's just that they're, um, you know, they're, they're not the, the sort of most frequent explanations for policy change. Um, in, in terms of this um, theory there there is a relationship um, but it's nowhere near as strong as as people think um, and it's sort of completely overwhelmed by a major period effect that I find from 1961 to 1976 uh, where we had lots of liberal policy regardless of uh, public opinion or the party of the the president so uh, if if you needed sort of one variable to to define whether we were passing a lot of liberal policy during this period um, the the best one would just be was it in the 60s and early 70s yeah. <laughs> rather than um, you know how much power did did Democrats have so of course Democrats did have a lot of power in Congress during during that period so I don't want to say that it, it was unimportant um, but it, but that's just more important than the than the sort of ebbs and flows of, of Democratic gains because I, I mean to me and I think probably to a lot of people on the left that is sort of a almost a, a baseline or an expectation of how the process should work. And I look to, you know, the, the, the long great society period, or even before that, you know, the, uh, FDR, uh, administrations as sort of, well, this is what we should expect. And anything that's not like this is sort of a deviation from that norm of good policy and good government. But that's really kind of more the exception than the rule, right? Uh, it, it certainly is the exception, and it's it's kind of consistent with with a lot of that <laughs> we have this problem pretty regularly in political science, where we assume that you know something that when we started uh, paying a lot of attention to the data in the '60s or so was the norm, uh, when it when it yeah. really could have been an outlier. And and kind of along with that, 
again, with macro politics is that the idea that public opinion, at least to a certain extent, should drive policy. Um, and, and that, to me, is more it, it kind of goes right to the heart of what we think of in terms of uh, what we expect in terms of democratic outcomes. If a lot of people are sort of for something, we should expect it to happen. But in reality, it doesn't really quite work out that way, right? Yeah, at the federal level over this period, I don't find uh, much of a relationship, especially after accounting uh, for that that strong period effect during the 60s and, and early 70s. Um, in, in fact, the, the more common pattern is actually the opposite, that, that public opinion moves against the direction of policy. So it's actually more common that when we pass policy, the public moves in the other direction, like con- moving conservative under Obama and moving liberal under Trump, uh, what we, we call that thermostatic public opinion. So the public reacting to policy is actually more common than the the policy reacting uh, to the public, um, but but I should say that that there are some findings of of public influence. Um, for example, I'm. Uh, now looking at the state level where uh, there's a more consistent relationship between um, public opinion and policy uh, in the states at, at, at least recently. So I uh, don't want to say that this this never matters, uh, but but over this period, it wasn't the, the most important thing driving uh, policy change. Do you think maybe that happens more at the state level and we get when we get down to lower levels, maybe even more because you have a, you have an electorate that's sort of more more similar and when you have less diversity you're going to have more of a likelihood of uh, of that happening uh, it could be. Um, I think the particular pattern in the states, though, was just that um, you know we had some kind of misaligned uh, states uh, between between politics and policy, and they sort of became uh, aligned, um, such that you know you, you sort of have uh, liberals and and Democrats in in states that are that are more liberal and 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 have more liberal policy now than in the past. Well, I'm going to try to find a way to kind of bring the public influence in here, maybe. But what about this idea that, okay, so the public doesn't influence policy directly, but it can have sort of an indirect limiting effect. Because if I'm, you know, if I'm a member of Congress and I think, well, there's no way my constituents will go for this, so it won't even reach the agenda. And and I know that might be, in a sense, impossible to test because I'm basically talking about policy that we don't see considered. But what do you think about that as at least a mechanism for some public uh, public role in this? Well, it, it could be, but I, I actually think the more important factor is just that uh, there's just a lot of stuff considered in in Congress and the executive branch that that doesn't really uh, reach public salience. Right. That doesn't, um, you know, that 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 just doesn't uh, seem to, to stimulate uh, much much public interest um, but but I do think that the kind of overall policy that we get um, is in some ways responsive to public opinion so in my later work um, for example I find that American public opinion is consistently conservative in kind of general values but liberal in right. specific policies which is kind of a long-running finding and that that is um, consistent with the kinds of policy we get so uh, we tend to solve problems brought up by liberals, um, but we do it more through conservative means than other countries. So we use more markets, more mm-hmm. more federalism, more contractors. We use the tax code overspending, um, and all of those are in, in some ways kind of responsive to to the symbolically conservative um, American electorate. Right. And now you also talk about uh, issue typology theories, which uh, essentially say that kind of if you know 
what type of policy we're talking about. You can make some reasonable predictions about whether it can happen or not. And of course, there are a lot of ways you can typologize policies, but one that I, I, I'd like to talk about a little bit, and in part because, you know, again, I use it in class all the time, is that fourfold typology where you look at how concentrated or diffuse the costs and the benefits are. And, and basically, uh, what I always tell students is, well, when you have a policy that has concentrated costs and diffuse benefits, there's a good chance it's not going to happen. But if you can spread those costs out and concentrate those benefits, then you're going to have a group of people pushing for it and a lot of other people who don't care. So enactment's going to be a lot more likely. And it certainly seems reasonable. And I'm wondering if that one holds up very well. Well, I think uh, these can be uh, useful in analyzing um, particular uh, policy debates, but they're they're not useful in thinking about kind of overall issue area differences, like distinguishing between health or agriculture as a policy area. Um, it, it just sort of doesn't line up consistently enough to be a good uh, guide uh, to that. Um, the other kind of relevant finding, I think, is is that. Uh, lots of policies tend to be about concentrated benefits yeah, and costs. So sure. um, you just see a lot more interest group politics um, uh, than than those other kinds of, of forms. Um, and even when you get something like that, that that might have a diffuse cost or benefits, it tends to be fought over uh, in Congress and the executive branch as a as a thousand little battles yeah. <laughs> over pieces of it, which which still have concentrated benefits and costs. So I, I think it, it's kind of a useful way to to potentially think about it, but it doesn't line up with kind of issue area differences. And um, it, it I, I think we underestimate um, how much of policymaking is just this kind of insider game about specific uh, entities that yeah. are going to gain or lose. Yeah, I wonder if in a way that's almost such a kind of a generalized truism that it it doesn't really help us a whole lot when we get into specific things essentially yeah i mean i think it's it's could be useful in uh, the previous point you were making about thinking about kind of why we never get to have certain yeah. kinds of policy debates um why certain things are, are kind of left off the agenda is kind of to get them anywhere close to passage they tend to end up being pretty complicated and and pretty responsive to lots of different uh, particularities and interests yeah and then the final theory that you talk about are well or kind of they're all sort of groupings of theories with various, you know, specific models, but this actor success theory, that idea that we get policy because at certain times we have these very skilled, influential, charismatic leaders. And and of course here, I naturally think of people like, you know, liberal icons like LBJ and, and FDR. And I guess conservatives might think about Ronald Reagan, right? That they just kind of push these things through essentially. And uh, do you think we overestimate the importance of these specific individuals? And usually they, they seem to be presidents, certainly. Or is there kind of something to this theory? Well, I, I don't think we overestimate um, the influence of the president necessarily. Um, the president is the single most uh, commonly uh, influential factor mentioned in, in policy uh, histories. Um, 
you know, it's a, a large portion of the, um, you know, of the, the sort of credited individuals are, are presidents um, at the time. And, and some presidents even get credit for policies that pass after uh, they they leave office. Um, I also make an argument that having four consecutive presidents um, uh, from Kennedy to Ford that all had extensive congressional experience um, may have mattered uh, to that period in the 1960s um, and, and 1970s. Um, so I I don't want to kind of, you know, eliminate these influences, but but the, the point I'm trying to make is that um, often we'll kind of limit the analysis uh, to the perspective of one actor. Most often it's the president, but you also see this in interest group studies or studies of research or social movements where they ask, you know, which movements or which research influenced policy or which, um, you know, uh, president succeeded uh, the most. And all those theories kind of know that, well, they're just dealing with one actor, so they have to figure out how to control for everything else in the process. But I think it, it, when you read these policy histories, you just realize from the beginning, these are all multi-causal processes um, that uh, mean that if you're looking at it from the perspective of any one actor, um, it's likely to be deceiving. Right, right. And the one thing that you mentioned I, I want to come back to a little bit is you, you said that one factor that was you thought was potentially important is that we had these four presidents who had congressional experience. Um, now, I- I've been thinking a lot about presidential candidates lately, understandably so. There seem to be, I don't know, uh, at least a couple dozen at this point. But one of the things that I've always focused on is, well, does somebody have uh, experience a- as a governor? And I'm, I'm like a lot of folks, I, I, my argument is, well, if you're used to you know running an executive branch, that sort of thing, even though it's a poor substitute. But I'm wondering if you think that in terms of policy success, that maybe having experience actually in Congress with the legislative process at the national level is perhaps more important than being a governor of even a large state. Well, I, I don't want to evaluate it as kind of a performance metric because uh-huh. it could be that, you know, the governors are better um, administrators. Um, but sure. yes, in terms of passing policy through Congress, um, I think uh, it does help. Um, and I think in, in particular, what, what happened in the spirit of the 1960s and 70s is that, you know, it really was this insider uh, process where everyone knew each other and they knew each other for a long time. And uh, they came, the presidents came into office uh, with already strong ties with key members of Congress and interest groups um, that that were active at the time. And so it just wasn't as hard uh, to kind of build coalitions from from scratch. Um, then you get uh, Jimmy Carter in 1976, who was, um, you know, who, who had had experience, um, but not experience dealing with Congress and, and not ties to these kind of national interest groups and, and members of Congress. And I think that really showed in um, in his ability to, to get things uh, through Congress. And most of the presidents since then have not had uh, a lot of uh, congressional experience, the, the exceptions being H.W. Uh, and Obama. Yeah. And, and so I guess it's not enough to just have a really good congressional liaison or anything like that. It's that the president uh, himself who actually needs that sort of understanding and have developed those networks essentially over time. Yeah, and it this sometimes gets oversold as you know uh, Obama didn't have or Trump didn't have the members of Congress over for dinner enough yeah, uh-huh. or things like that. But uh, you know th- that 
in some ways that's that is cheapening <laughs> the process of the the development of those ties and obviously if we're thinking about somebody like Lyndon Johnson you know these are extremely long uh, ties uh, where we're regularly trying to make agreements with with people who who disagree with us uh, or or who care about different things uh, and and so he had kind of established the the credibility and the and the skills to to do that Right. And so it's not really personal friendships. It's more like understanding pressure points and leverage and things like that with individual members of of Congress or people who are in those influential positions. Yeah, of course, Johnson is, is most famous for vote counting ability. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, that that's a very particularized legislative skill. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So once you discussed the problems with all of these theories and kind of as a general rule, we can say that none of them do a particularly good job of explaining policy change kind of at that highest level. Then you talk about sort of your own theory of policymaking. And there are a number of things about that I think are, are really interesting. Um, one of them is your conclusion that the, 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 the clearest characteristic of policy is what you call pervasive status quo bias. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and what accounts for it? Uh, it, it just means if you want to bet uh, well in Washington, you should bet on nothing happening. <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's always easier to to block things than than pass things. Uh, that is is due to some sort of classic um, problems of, of people being invested in, in the current system, um, but it's also due to the many blocks uh, uh, put into our institutions to, to make it hard uh, to, to pass policy, uh, and, and those are effective at doing so. Right, and some people would actually say, especially on the right, I would imagine, would say, well, that's not a bug, that's a feature. Uh, absolutely, and and there is a reason for that. Um, you know, the the most of the time when we pass policy, it tends to expand the the yeah. scope of government responsibility, and so uh, it's sort of natural that that conservatives, uh, while they may complain that they're not getting their their policies through, they're they're more um, happy with less happening uh, than liberals are. Yeah, and so that gets to your point, their conclusion that. This status quo bias is what you call ideologically asymmetric, that it that it favors the left on a regular basis. Right. Well, I mean, you could uh, it depends. <laughs> it depends how you interpret it. Uh, the, the both both sides are right. Right. The 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 status quo bias um, regularly stops liberals uh, from passing new things that they that they want to pass. Uh, on the other hand, when things do pass, uh, they tend to be liberal. So the norm is kind of for incremental liberal advancement uh, over time. And that is is really quite true um, across the world. It's especially hard to take away prior legislative benefits uh, in any political system. Um, and it, so, you know, it's, it's in some sense a, a broader uh, pattern, um, but it was sort of especially true of this uh, state building that, that we have been doing in America since the 60s. Right. Since every policy creates a constituency, as, as the saying has it, it makes it a lot tougher. And so basically, while it's difficult to get that to get that sucker in the door, if you can actually get it passed, then when government does stuff, it tends to, well, of course, increase the size of government, which liberals tend to like and conservatives don't. I guess really the only real exceptions of that would be kind of deregulatory policies and tax cuts and, and things like that. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, there there are conservative policies that that do pass. Um, they're actually less common in the administration, um, according to my data, um, than in uh, Congress. Um, so it's sort of not the case that that you usually get deregulation um, in the administration. Uh, but uh, of course, you can get conservative policies everywhere. They're just less common than right. than liberal policies. So then, uh, and I'm sure some of the conservative listeners will take away from this, we'll see the system essentially is stacked against us, basically. Uh, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, th- there's a reason that you see more proposals for making it easier to pass things uh, by liberals. Um, yeah. And and you sort of see more complaints about stasis and, and polarization uh, on the left. It's it's because they win more from a system that where it's easier to pass things. Yeah, definitely. Now, you also talk a lot about the insularity of policy, and uh, I I was hoping you could talk about two things, really, kind of explaining what you mean by policy is insular for the most part, and also whether or not you think that's a significant problem. Well, it it means that, you know, the factors that matter most for policymaking are usually kind of internal to to government institutions. They're about specific people uh, and organizations um, reaching agreement on policy details. Uh, We mostly notice policy when it's kind of high salience and and in the media. um, But the the policy change that does get done uh, tends uh, to to not always be uh, publicly salient and to be due to kind of negotiations among policymakers uh, and relevant uh, groups um, uh, rather uh, than uh, kind of these these public partisan fights. Um, and, And part of the sort of corollary of that is if it kind of becomes this big politicized public fight, that's often a sign that it's not going to pass. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that, um, not always, but, but you know, that, that, that can be a good sign that, that it's going nowhere. Whereas if it's kind of being, uh, going on behind the scenes, technical requires deal making, doesn't have clear sides, uh, then you might be more likely to see actual policy change, um, happening. Uh, in terms of the, the normative effect of that, it, I, I do think, um, you know, in some sense, it's it's anti-democratic to say that you know things are things that get done tend to be those that that kind of are behind the scenes or are mostly among the the interested parties. Um, you know, on the other hand, the system was set up to uh, try to force uh, deal making among various interests, and and it does do that. I mean, and and of course, we we hear when we hear anti-democratic, it sounds almost to everyone like a, like a pejorative. And uh, I think you can make the case, right, that the public actually is not in a very good uh, position for the most part to make some of these judgments, especially about more technical sort of things, you know, whether it's, uh, I think about the tax code or, or, or uh, regulation of financial institutions or something like that. And, and that's actually, again, not a bug, but a, but a positive feature of our policy system, the, uh, the insularity that's built into it in a way. Uh, that certainly is an argument that's, that's commonly made. (laughs) Um, I do think that one of my findings is kind of hard to reconcile with that, which is that policymakers aren't even responsive to the issue areas where the public wants them to address it. So, uh, I think it would be one thing if, if the public determined kind of what problems to solve and the technocrats determined how to solve them, but that isn't really what, what we see either. Um, the, the, the technocrats are, are responding to their own, uh, motivations rather than those of the public. Gotcha. So uh, you talk also kind of this is, I think, gets to the heart of your theory of policymaking is something you call the institutionalized policy entrepreneur. And uh, 
Can you explain what that is and how you sort of see the role of this institutionalized policy entrepreneur in driving policy change when it does happen? So I took this concept of a policy entrepreneur, which is someone who uh, works uh, for a long time to, to get a policy designed and then also to build the political coalition uh, to pass it. Um, but I noticed that some of the quintessential examples uh, from, from previous uh, work uh, tended to be kind of people from outside of government who are policy specialists. And, and that's not what I found at the, the federal level. Um, it tends to be generalists and, and definitely not outsiders. It tends to be very long-serving politicians or interest group leaders um, who are often serial policy entrepreneurs, people like Ted Kennedy, um, who are regularly interested in the details of policy and in uh, knowing the, the political coalitions um, possible to, to, to get that done. And I, I do notice an I did notice an attitude that um, is not very common anymore, which is um, the policy entrepreneurs tend to, these institutionalized policy entrepreneurs tend to look out and they, they say, of the things that have a chance to pass, which one do I like? Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> and they work on those. Uh, and we're much more likely now to, to say, you know, how can I get the things that I most want to pass to pass? Um, and, and that tends not to be an attitude that, that is associated with uh, success quite as often. You know, in mentioning that, you uh, you talk at, at one point in the book, and I forget where, but about you kind of pose the question, who are the modern versions of these kind of older, you know, older school policy entrepreneurs? And and you mention, I think, uh, Chuck Schumer and then and, and Mitch McConnell as, you know, I'm not saying that they are, but can they sort of rise to this occasion? And I got to say, I... I certainly wouldn't think of those two names, obviously, but is there, in looking out at Congress, I mean, is there anyone you see who kind of fits that mold of kind of a, a, a Ted Kennedy or some of those other folks who you could reasonably classify as a, as a policy entrepreneur? Well, of course, we're having um, you know this debate in the in the presidential campaign season, and and it is is sort of a um, debate ongoing. Um, and there and I think there there's cases you can build. For example, uh, Amy Klobuchar uh, came out as as being the by the classic legislative effectiveness measures the most effective uh, senator. Um, Joe Biden, of course, was involved in in three different very different uh, budget deals with Mitch McConnell and the Obama administration. So. Um, it's not there. There's nobody of the the same type um, that that I found historically, but I think there are cases to be made that that some people tend to have that kind of attitude uh, more than more than others. Yeah. Um. It, it seems to me maybe it's because it seems like half the Democrats in the Senate are running for president that we don't see a lot of that. I don't know, but but you know, I when I when I listen to a lot of the Democratic presidential candidates talking about their policy plans, really regardless of area. Almost always the first thing I think is, how can you possibly expect to do this? You know, given the fact that I, I think it's fairly safe to say that we're not going to see a kind of an Obama 2009 situation with, you know, control of, of both branches and the filibuster-proof majority in the, in the Senate. And, and I'm wondering if you agree with that. And if, if you do... If you think it's kind of, in a way, almost irresponsible of people, and, you know, Elizabeth Warren, I'm talking to you here, I guess, a little bit, and Bernie Sanders, too, to talk about these big things that I just don't see any realistic way are going to happen. And I got to think that Sanders and Warren and some others have to know that, right? 
Uh, I think I think they do. I think um, you know there's quite a lot of pie in the sky plans um, that that would have um, trouble, if not be impossible, to to pass on the campaign trail. Uh, but I would also look at the you know the 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 actual sort of top ten bills in the House, for example. Five of them are are going to 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 pass right away, um, you know, with universal democratic support, and uh, none of them seem. Like they might not ever pass the Senate under a Democratic president, right. so um, I, I think there are, um, you know, that there are proposals out there that that have some uh, chance of of passing. Um, I, I do think that there's also an argument that you know you should just say what <laughs> what policy you favor um, in the in the primary, and that you know that sure. people will notice that you know things <laughs> things get whittled down but but you should at least sort of say what what you believe is optimal policy yeah was it the the cuomo was it the cuomo court about you you govern in you you campaign in poetry and govern in prose or something mm-hmm. along those lines yes. i think um you know i i wanted to ask you about a couple of other kind of i guess broad theories of how the policy uh, uh environment i guess has changed over time and i think you might be sort of uniquely positioned to talk about these given how you had to immerse yourself in policy history. Um, uh, one person whose work I really respect and I've had on the show a couple of times is Jacob Hacker. And I'm sure you're familiar with, with his work. And basically, one thing he argues is that there's been a pretty obvious, just general rightward move in domestic policy, especially if you look at the areas of you know labor, economic, regulatory policy, dating from roughly the 19, late 1970s, really up until today. And I'm wondering, from what you've seen in the policy histories, does that, is that, does that seem like a, a reasonable conclusion to come to? Well, it's certainly true that our extensive period of policy liberalism ended in in 1976. Um, so, um, you know, not passing as much liberal policy is is clearly a conservative move. Um, but it wasn't due to a large number of conservative policies passing. Um, it was kind of due to to fewer liberal policies um, more often. Now, Hacker is is usually clear um, uh, about policy drift. That uh, some of what he's talking about is not passing policies. So, right. Uh, right. The minimum wage being the classic example, um, you know, of, of a policy that obviously gets uh, less uh, effective over time um, due to not acting. Yeah. Um, so so I, I think it's reasonable for, for um, uh, liberals to look out and say, you know, look, there's been a conservative move because we are acting uh, less often to solve uh, new problems as they arise or to update pr- uh, prior policies. Uh, but I don't think we should we should necessarily say co- conservatives have kind of gotten their way. Um, we, we've really seen more stasis right. than, than that. So, I mean, conservatives could say, well, actually, that was just that long, great society aberration, and we're just kind of reverting back to the more of a normal kind of centrist norm, so it's not really the case. Yeah, they might say that, but but you do see a um, a, a real disconnect between um, what conservatives usually say about their their preferences um, and then what what they're actually able to do in office. So you still hear a lot more rhetoric about rolling back the state and regulations yeah. and things like that than they're actually able to accomplish. Yeah, and certainly uh, I've seen in George W. Bush. I mean, there were a couple of pretty pretty extensive policy changes, and I think those were probably just captured in toward the tail end of of your research there. They were, and and it's actually the norm for even Republican presidents to propose these expansions of government responsibility, like education and health, to go along with uh, his his tax cuts. Um, so Trump is actually really uh, unique in in not forwarding any kind of new liberal policies through Congress. 
I guess because because people like stuff and they prefer not to pay for it, essentially, <laughs> which is yeah. you know, again yeah. talk about truisms. But um, another uh, kind of broader theory about how American politics, especially in the policy arena, has changed that uh, I've talked about a number of times on the show is. Uh, it has to do with Norm Ornstein, who I've had on a few times. And his argument, it seems to me, is that starting in the mid-90s, we see the rise of uh, Gingrich and the Republican Party transforming into what he and Tom Mann call insurgent outliers, and basically that the entire field moved to the right because the Republicans moved further right on policy than Democrats moved to the left. And I, I'm wondering if that's more of a rhetorical move or we actually see that reflected in policy what do you think well so so for starters newt newt came to congress in 1977 mm-hmm. and it perfectly aligns with the republican party's steady move uh, rightward by our basic measures of of congressional voting um uh, we actually argue that uh, part of that was actually kind of a response to to the liberal reforms uh, in the mid 70s. The the kind of uh, curiosity here is that it was liberals who kind of wanted to reform the process right at right. the tail end of their most successful period. Um, but it it seems to have ended up um, by by kind of empowering parties over committees, ended up empowering the minority party uh, to um, to yeah. sort of be be more obstructionist. Um, in terms of of how we should con- consider that move right it's it's absolutely the case by that by congressional voting um, models um, the Republican Party has moved uh, further rightward um, then the Democratic Party has moved leftward and the the Democratic Party's move is mostly a regional end to southern uh, conservatives um, rather than uh, moved by everyone uh, but I I do think that those votes are mostly about um, whether we should expand the, <laughs> the scope of government so you still have to keep in mind that from a Republicans perspective they, they would say well if we're only trying to repeal half the Affordable Care Act, then you know, then then yeah. we're not we're we're not as far uh, uh, right as we were before the Affordable Care Act. Right. So, um, by by some standards, that that is true. Um, liberals still prefer half to 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 none. Um, but by historical standards, it it's it's quite a move to now want to take away a legislative benefit uh, several years after it was legislated. So it really does represent a, a rightward move by Republicans. Yeah. Well, you know, I wanted to ask you about not just the Affordable Care Act, but it seems to me that at least in the last few years, when I think about significant policy changes, there are really three that stand head and shoulders above all the others. And that's, of course, you know, the Affordable Care Act, the the Dodd-Frank financial reform, and and most recently, the Republican tax cuts. And and I'm wondering, do those, are, are you able to sort of look at those through the lens of the policy entrepreneur the theory and kind of identify, you know, which kind of entrepreneurs drove each of those? Well, uh, first, I'd say historians are, are likely to recognize a lot more major policy changes. Um, sure. And, and we, we tend to notice the ones that are kind of the most partisan at, at right, the time. Right. And and um, so just to mention two, two others, um, the, the, there was a, a massive student loan reform that was passed at the very same time as the Affordable Care Act that, that got less attention but had huge effects. Uh, and we just passed a bipartisan criminal justice reform right. bill that will be seen as a major turn in criminal justice policy. Policy. So I think part of the problem is we kind of 
notice these big partisan um, uh, fights. Um, but, uh, you know, recent, even very recent data shows that, you know, there's been no increase in parties' ability to pass their agenda and that most laws still pass with, with bipartisan majorities. We just kind of hear about them uh, less less often. Yeah, in terms of the, uh, the procedures that brought them about, I think the ACA is going to be one of those, like the Civil Rights Act, where almost every... Uh, almost every factor that is on my list will be mentioned by yeah. by some policy historians because obviously it was this very, very close set of uh, votes, a lot of historical contingencies. Um, uh, but uh, I think importantly for our current discussions, it certainly is an example of the Obama administration uh, trying to work with all of the potential uh, objectors in the interest group community and mm-hmm. among legislators uh, to try to find uh, some kind of you know internal politics uh, solution. On the other other hand, it was also a very public debate, obviously, that um, that, uh, you know, was discussed in, in the campaigns uh, as well. Yeah. Um, now, I've been thinking a lot just because I'm one of those sort of frustrated, frustrated liberals, I guess, who would like to see more policy change. And maybe it's my it's probably my background as as an institutionalist. So when I think about problems with getting policy through, I think about institutional structure a lot. And more specifically, I've been thinking about, well, what sort of things could we possibly do without actually having to amend the Constitution, which is, you know, essentially impossible these days. And there are a number of kind of ideas I keep on coming back to. Uh, and the simplest, I think, would be uh, ending the Senate filibuster. And I'm wondering, do you think that would have an appreciable effect on policymaking? Uh, I think that it would, uh, but I but I also think that we tend to overemphasize the or, or overestimate the effects of, of reforms, especially on passing more more policy. Um, you know, we 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 tend to get uh, these kind of deluges of policy more after kind of big electoral changes um, than after big institutional uh, changes. Um, and I think it, part of the problem is that we we look out and we see you know a whole bunch of messaging bills right now that are passing, uh, and we assume uh, well all of those would become laws if you know if we could just uh, get over this filibuster. Um, but as we saw, for example, with the repeal of the ACA. Even if (laughs) even if members of Congress had voted for something for 50 times, that doesn't mean that they were actually willing to kind of carry it out when it actually was was likely to become law. Some that's a little more strategically, uh, strategically done, certainly. But I guess in one area, though, and and this is maybe a little bit off, but, you know, certainly we see the effect of, of removing the filibuster for all judicial nominees and how. President Trump's been able to, with McConnell's help, push through an awful lot of nominees very quickly. And that that would would obviously indirectly affect policy in a pretty big way. Uh, yes. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, most judicial nominees used to used to go through without uh, much, much trouble. Yeah. And so in some ways, the, the, the barrier was that was removed was really only in effect for for a, a short amount of time. Right. Uh, not too long ago, I, I was listening to an interview with uh, Pete Buttigieg, who's one of my, I don't know, one of my early favorites. I don't know. I like him a lot, but I guess I'm just on that bandwagon right now. But one of the things he was arguing is that that Republicans know that their policies can't win in what you might say is a fair fight. And so basically what they're trying to do is to stack the deck by, you know, gerrymandering and working to suppress the vote, basically. But and that when he said that, I was like, yeah, that's right. You tell him, Pete. But then I read your research and I thought, you know, 
if, if you're right about the insular nature of policymaking, maybe minimizing gerrymandering and making it easier to vote, expanding the electorate, maybe that's not going to have as much of a difference as, as I think and as, as Pete Buttigieg thinks. I don't know. Um, what do you think about that? Well, uh, anything that keeps you know Democrats in in power longer is is likely to make make a difference. Um, uh, it it might also have other other effects. So so we tend to go back and forth when we have a Democratic president. It tends to make a Republican Congress more likely, and and vice versa. So yeah. it's un, unclear if that would that would be stable over the long term. But it's absolutely true that um, Republicans you know tend to tend to stack the deck more in the uh, in in congressional. Um, voting uh, in terms of getting more seats uh, than uh, votes um, uh, more than the Democrats do lately. Um, although that, you know, it's a, actually a somewhat short term pattern. If you yeah. go back to the 60s and 70s, it was the opposite. It was Democrats who had the bigger advantage. Um, so uh, I think I think it would, um, you know, it potentially uh, make a difference. Um, uh, but you know, it's it 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 wouldn't necessarily lead to the policy deluge um, that that some might expect. Um, I also take a, a more comparative perspective on it, which is just that um, you know, conservative parties everywhere globally uh, for a very long time have been uh, less uh, enamored with democratizing reforms than yeah. than liberal parties, and and that's for, uh, you know, that's for a good reason. Yeah. Um. Let me let me throw a, a much more radical proposal at you. I don't know. I've kind of latched down to this a little bit, but uh, the the size of the house. You know, a lot of people may may not realize this, but up until the early part of the 20th century, really, we had pretty regular increases in the size of the house to the point where you know up up to 435. But I'm wondering if we enlarged the House and Congress could just do that on its own to to the point where it was big enough where congressional districts were small enough that candidates could potentially run kind of real sort of grassroots door-to-door campaigns, not have to rely on a lot of big outside money. If that might make a make a difference. I mean, certainly logistically we could have a much bigger Congress, but or house, but would there be any point from a policy perspective? Do you think uh, it's not obvious to me that it would make a big policy difference? Um, we do have a lot of um, uh, uh, variation in in the size of state houses and senates, for example, um, and I'm not sure that's real predictive of, of policy differences across states. Um, uh, obviously, it would you know would have a, a a more direct advantage in in representation of of more people knowing their their member and and feeling better represented. So it's it's possible that 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 that's important in and of itself. Donald Trump, rhetoric aside, t- tweets aside, uh, how would you rate him as a, a policy entrepreneur? And I guess, to be fair, we'd probably have to compare him to the last couple of presidents in kind of a similar environment. But h- how would you say he stacks up in terms of strengths and weaknesses? Well, I think he's been he's been pretty awful at legislative influence. Um, the, you know, there's almost nothing that you can you can credit um, to to Trump. Um, and even though you can credit some things to to congressional uh, leaders, and of course he oversaw a, a not very uh, productive uh, Congress, and and is overseeing another one. So um, I wouldn't credit him much there. But in the executive branch, he's actually been. Um, a lot. There's been a lot more action, and and some of it I think is fair to credit to, especially how steadfast he has been on immigration and trade, um, uh, two issues um, where he has held 
you know, fairly consistent uh, positions and and really not taking no for an answer uh, from the executive branch. Um, and that that is that is pretty rare um, and, and could be considered, I guess, a, a sort of a success of, of yeah. policy entrepreneurship. Now, some, especially on the right, would say, well, that's just kind of a continuation of a trend we started to see with President Obama basically trying to legislate through executive fiat, as they might say. And so it's not that Trump is doing anything new. He's just picking up where Obama left off. Well, there's definitely a long-term trend there. Um, but one thing that Trump is benefiting from is he's picked these two policy areas where he does have a lot of power. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, if, if he was really concerned about education and healthcare, he couldn't make as much um, as many moves. But he's really concerned about trade, where he has a whole bunch of unilateral power and immigration, uh, where, you know, he's the main enforcement authority. So, uh, yes, there are continuations of trade uh, of trends, but but these are areas where he could be quite powerful. Yeah. And, you know, throughout the course of our conversation, what, what I'm basically hearing again and again is, well, you know, you, you shouldn't expect much and people don't have a whole lot of influence. And that's, you know, that's kind of a bummer, actually, to a lot of folks, I would imagine. And so let me ask you maybe the hardest question to end on is, is there anything, do you, is there anything you think we could potentially do that might uh, help, you know, what, what gets enacted into policy better reflect what a majority of Americans actually want. Well, one problem is that the public is conflicted on on policy. So, um, you know, as as we as we discussed, sure. they they tend to give us these liberal answers when we ask about specific policy questions, um, but conservative answers on on broader ideas about the role of government. And then they also tend to react against the direction of policy. So, when we get, even though they might have said we want national health care, once it's enacted, they they uh, <laughs> go against it. Right. Even though they might have said they wanted a tax cut, once it's enacted. Did they go against it? And so uh, it, I guess it's not that clear that they're they're not getting what they want. Um, the, the, the typical um, kind of American solution has been this incremental liberalism that tried to kind of mollify conservatives by through the form of policy. So we tended to get uh, policy to address liberal goals through conservative means. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that was kind of a you know, that, that was kind of a, a <laughs> attempt uh, yeah. to address um, the, the public's mixed opinions. But I think um, it's fair to say that the Republican Party's current role makes even that kind of slow advance of liberalism uh, much more difficult. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think liberals are <laughs> are asking, um, you know, whether whether anything might might make a, a difference to make it move um um, uh, more quickly, especially uh, in areas like climate change, where there's kind yeah. of a ticking ticking clock. Um, so I, I think those are fair questions. The only and, and some of the solutions that you you mentioned, um, you know, could make a difference. Um, the one caution I would give is that the history of liberal reforms as a project to advance liberal policy is a failure. <laughs> that that yeah. is, um, we enacted all of these. Um, uh, reforms of things, everything from campaign finance to party nominations to congressional uh, committees, uh, all right before the era of <laughs> big yeah. policy yeah. liberalism ended. Um, so while that's not entirely causal, I think it should be a cautionary note that reforms are necessarily the way to advance uh, policy liberalism. So uh, on one hand, I guess the negative view, at least again, coming at this from the left is that, well, 
maybe we shouldn't tinker with the system because we're going to end up perhaps certainly with some unintended consequences and not with success that we would hope for, at least based on past history. But the positive, or at least if you're a conservative, the negative is it does seem like in the larger, longer sweep of policy history that we're getting more liberal, more progressive over time, just maybe not quick enough for a lot of folks on the left. Yeah, and so both both sides have sort of a um, a complaint <laughs> that that has some some basis in reality. Uh, Democrats uh, can can complain that we're really not doing much, um, and despite uh, rising problems and and policies from the past that need to be updated, and Republicans can complain that they never sort of seem to win this overall battle about the the size and role of government. Well, yeah, I, I, about that, you know, I think of that, I think it was an old motto for National Review, maybe they stand athwart history yelling stop. Uh, and, and I guess in the end, maybe that would be kind of a dispiriting sort of position for, cons- for real conservatives to be in, because it seems like ultimately, based on what we know, they're just kind of fighting a, a, a losing battle, essentially. Yeah, and I, I think actually this is this is actually fairly well known and remar- remarked upon in uh, conservative circles, yeah. uh, and and also applies to, to social issues. So sometimes we think about this as a size of government indicator, but over the long term, there's certainly been a uh, shift leftward in, uh, on social issues, with abortion being the primary exception that's sort of led to stasis. Um, and so, you know, it it is fair. For conservatives to ask whether um, they're kind of just slowing um, their kind of in- inevitable uh, moves left um, in in government. All right. Well, on that sort of hopeful note for liberals and depressing note for conservatives, I guess we'll we'll wrap things up. Uh, Matt Grossman, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you get not only our gratitude, but a supporter's exclusive bonus episode each week. And supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters-only Facebook group. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys or visit the support page on our website, politicsguys.com support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes, which is easy to do right there in your podcast app. Word of mouth really is the best advertising, and we greatly appreciate it. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes or whatever other podcast app you're listening to on also really helps. And hey, if you've got a question, comment, correction, or just want to say hi, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.